0: I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land from which I am recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge those listeners with lived experience in mental health and suicidal thoughts and behaviours, extending this to those parents, carers, families and clinicians. With today's episode, I want to also additionally acknowledge Ukraine, Their current situation, the heartache, the devastation, and the loss. Those on the ground, those separated from loved ones, and those Ukrainian citizens residing in other countries. This week, I have a very present issue with Rebecca Ruiz. You may know her name from numerous articles she has written over the years, working with Al Jazeera America, NBC News, Forbes, The Atlantic, and Mashable. Her name may also be familiar as I shared one of her recent articles practically helping us look after our own mental health as we witnessed the Ukrainian devastations unfold. Rebecca's article opened so effortlessly and viscerally describing her first personal reaction when hearing, viewing and reading about the events in Ukraine. To quote, without warning, there it was in my Twitter feed video of a Russian missile exploding a Ukrainian administrative building in Kharkiv. Minutes earlier, I'd seen footage of Ukrainians rushing to flee the country's capital via train. The reporter's caption was more haunting than the imagery. A mother was just briefly separated from her child on the platform. Her scream was something I'm not sure I can find words to describe. In this episode, you may find, or notice, Our language when speaking about Ukraine as a nation isn't the Ukraine, but instead, Ukraine, singular. Interesting, Rebecca informed me that this is a way of sensitively identifying Ukraine as separate to Russia and not just another province of theirs. If you are finding the Ukraine situation distressing or too much for you at the moment, that is totally fine. This episode may be something you want to come back to at another time. In disclaiming this, We talk more practically and informatively by research than we do the details of the events. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining me. It is so wonderful to have you on, having given, stumbling upon your article on Apple News about our mental health uh, as we watch on the Ukrainian uh, situation with Russia sort of... Well, I don't have to explain it really just that horrible, tragic and and dismantling of society and culture and, and so many of our norms and preconceptions. But, um, I found your article and I shared it on, on our, uh, Instagram channel. I found it brilliant and really practical and, and we'll get into some of the practicalities a bit later. But when I sort of looked you up to to contact you and to be like, please, can you come on? Can you come on? And do as much as I could to try and convince you which I didn't have to do much it was really wonderful thank you I saw that your writing and and you know uh, particularly your bio at, at Mashable has been primarily within the mental health space and the things that are happening at the moment and how they they do affect our mental health as viewers as consumers as participants as well within what's going on. I wanted to ask, what has drawn you to writing on the subject? I think it's it's we know historically that it is or has been somewhat of a taboo and it's shrouded with stigma and things like that, but we're still needing more and more education about it, hence this podcast. But from your point of view, what drew you to, to writing on the subject and continue to writing on the subject as well?
1: Uh, I've always, answered answer a question, been fascinated by the way people recover from experiencing hurt or heartbreak or tragedy. And I always wondered what makes the difference between someone who experiences those things and and continue to thrive and someone who experiences those things and suffers more compared to the person who's thriving. And, you know, I've also had friends who've dealt with suicidal feelings or behavior. And when I was younger, I might have said to them, to convince them that life is worth living. And while that sounds like a great idea at 18 or 19 or 20, you learn as you grow older that it's about so much more than that. And when I was early in my career, I don't know, about 13 or 14 years ago, I looked uh, on a fellowship to the CDC, which year in the United States is the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I listened to one of their researchers talk about what it would be like to sort of inoculate people from suicidal feelings and behavior, as if we could have a kind of social or behavioral health approach to suicide prevention. And I found it so fascinating that it sort of changed the course of my career. Um, And I started reporting on suicide prevention. I've been reporting on suicide since then, intermittently off and on. Um, I've covered many uh, public suicides, like Robin Williams, that we all know. And I've also covered suicide in the military, the United States military and representations of suicide. So that has been a core piece of my work, but so has trauma and our exposure to trauma and what that sort of does to us both as individuals and as a collective. So I, I think it's just that human impulse of wanting to understand what people hope um, and how people cultivate resilience. But in addition to that, how our systems and institutions and structures can create the conditions for our suffering as well so that it's not uh, an individual burden that we all bear, right, our mental health, but that how we move through our lives has everything to do with the systems and structures that we live in.
0: Yeah, and I think that that has been only a recent aha moment for a lot of us, right? Like you were saying... I I don't even think it's necessarily, you know, being in your 20s or, or those sort of young adult years that we try and help people who are experiencing suicidal ideation or behaviors to be like, life is worth living. You've got so much to live for. And I have a guest coming up who wrote the book. Toxic positivity, Dr. Whitney Goodman, and she runs the. You seem familiar with her work, and she um is she was fantastic in breaking down how not just sitting in that emotion with people, not just personally, but also societally, and being like, yeah, it's it's shit. And we, we need to support you and stand in the mud with you in that um, Rather than be like, it's all right Like as in Australia we have a an attitude And I'm sure you've probably heard it She'll be right, mate And that's so intrinsic in our culture Of just brush it under the carpet, it'll pass Like particularly when it comes to suicide prevention And the role that we all individually play Like you were saying, not just societally is huge in understanding that we need to be present in those situations and we need to not be in silos and that there are institutions or world events that do impact our trauma response and and sort of understanding what a trauma response is and, and even the physiological uh, ramifications that ha- can have. They, I was reminded on... I think it was just over the weekend and every time I hear it, I'm like totally just shocked, even though I've known it for years, is that someone who's experienced trauma or acute distress or anxiety, it doesn't. It was Grey's Anatomy, sorry, that, that's what it was. <laughs> Meredith Grey was yeah. doing her classic voiceover and and it, she was explaining uh, how the process is that the physical effects on our body is so much more than the uh, pre-thought mental or emotional effects and that the physical effects sustain so much longer. And, you know, something like being verbally or emotionally abused ha- is something like 10 times, physically 10 times worse than being punched in the face or kicked in the gut, that sort of, which is just wild.
1: I am not familiar with that, that statistic, but You know, there's a lot of research on adverse childhood experiences where we can see the long tail effects, right? Over time, people who have had those experiences do have physical health conditions. They're more likely to have physical health conditions and mental health conditions too. Um, But absolutely, uh, you know, emotional uh, and psychological abuse are a part
0: of that. Mm. You open your article... Uh, So brilliantly and so casually the way that we all sort of engage with the world by opening your feed, your social media feed and being bombarded or shocked or, or winded by the situation in Ukraine and Russia and the invasion. And you paint such a vivid picture of in so few words of what that was like but I wanted to ask if you would feel comfortable to take us through that moment for you and not just the first video or the first images that you saw but then the the consequential that it it just happens to roll on the more you sort of open up one the next comes on and oh, the yeah. next comes on
1: Absolutely. And and I'm aware that I'm paying attention as a journalist, but also a human being who's trying to understand what's happening in the world. So, in my mind, part of my job is to be paying attention. Uh, but there's also that human impulse to just seek information to have clarity or reassurance or knowledge of what's happening. And uh, the clarity and reassurance part aren't going to happen. <laughs> That's part of the challenge, right? Is that yes. situations like this. Yeah. You know, we just keep falling down the rabbit hole of more content uh, that's quite unnerving um, and and disturbing. And so that morning, I just opened my feed and saw a tweet from a former colleague of mine, actually Christopher Miller, who's an incredible reporter who does work in Ukraine. And he had had a video of a train station platform um, and described uh, hearing a mother who'd been separated from her, her child. They were trying to flee. And he sort of said you heard this, this scream, unlike anything I've heard before. And this video, mind you, wasn't, I didn't link to it partly because I didn't want necessarily to like send people down the rabbit hole, but this video wasn't very graphic or vivid, but as a mom, I knew exactly what that scream would sound like. And I just started sobbing because I could feel it like in my bones. Right. And then it wasn't too long after that, maybe like within a couple of minutes when I'd seen this uh, video of, um, you know, this this Ukrainian building being exploded basically by Russian arms, and and that too was so devastating because it was so visceral, right? And these are images that I think, depending on when you were born and grew up, you know, these the, the viscerality—that's a word of these images—is is new, right? That they're coming to us from the front lines of people who have video cameras um, who are posting them online, and and it's really hard to to grapple with that and I will say that over the years in the last two decades you know the more and more we have social media the more and more we see these images and you know CNN's been on the ground other you know uh, news organizations have been on the ground in many conflicts around the world so not saying these images are new but the proliferation of them the availability of them the rate at which we encounter them so much quicker than it used to be and so for me I you know I felt this overwhelming sense of grief and hopelessness and and this sentiment of how can I even begin to help right and it did have this sort of snowball effect on my mental health that morning because I as a journalist you know our profession sort of insists that you keep your emotions at bay lest we lose our status as some kind of objective or neutral observer <laughs> which that's, that's a whole other conversation right but this is sort of the tradition <laughs> and what we've been you know trained in and I think over the years I found reporting on mental health that when I would try to bottle up or suppress my emotions and say I don't have time for them right now, or it's inconvenient to feel them, I'm on a deadline, I don't have I don't have a moment to cry, it would ultimately come out in <laughs> later in unhelpful ways, right? Like this sort of like numbness or anxiety or overwhelming grief that would be hard for me to focus, you know, with my kids at bedtime or you know, um, just there have been a couple of times where I've been reporting on something where I I started to approach burnout because of how intense the emotions were. And, you know, I've developed a mindfulness practice in recent years where I stop and I give myself permission to pause and say, and try to name what I'm feeling and try to extend self-compassion in as an antidote to that pain. And I do, you know... I'm aware, right. As I was writing this piece, I didn't, I wanted people to to do as you did, which is sort of read it and recognize it. Right. But I didn't want to spend the rest of the piece kind of subjecting you over and over again to the, the trauma. I wanted to try to direct people to here's how to deal with that trauma.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was what was so great was it was so practical and it, it didn't involve a recount of what was happening. It just involved that, you know, almost that journalistic taboo, that first-hand response, right? Like you were saying of the, and, and you, uh, when you uh, paused for a moment just before, you had to take a deep breath, that, that emotional strain, that elephant sitting on the chest that we've all felt, like that loss of breath when it comes to seeing these scenes and we saw uh we saw and and heard uh i think it was yesterday some of the first ukrainian refugees entering australia and therefore uh not entering any sort of refugee camp or anything they're actually living amongst regular individuals in communities who have sort of offered their their homes and and bedrooms um and this one woman uh was detailing the fact that she's had to leave her her 90 something year old mother who in in an apartment building because she wouldn't be able to provide the care she wouldn't be able to she was uh, you know immobile in the sense of fleeing immobile she left her husband uh who was going and being trained uh with lack of arms um and she you know the car that she had something happened or the bus that they had something happened and they were left stranded uh and all she had was a backpack of photographs and sentimentalities and they had to trudge through the snow to get to poland to then uh evacuate and to hear those responses and and hear in her voice her acknowledgement that she may never see her mother again, she may never see her husband again, was heartbreaking. And, and you know, you feel quite clotted in the chest in, in breathing or quite shallow in breathing when you're sort of reliving those experiences. and And you were sort of saying before the way in which, you know, you've been able to, learn i guess the mindfulness practices to avoid that sort of numb or depressive or anxious feelings that you may have that take you away from being present with your children and and i'm sure i, I mean i don't have kids but i've heard my mum say that if she could have her time again there would be so many things that she would outsource so that she could spend more and more time um and i think that's every parent that you know as they look back, they're like, oh, if I didn't have to do that, I, you know, those five minutes I could have spent at bedtime, or those five minutes I could have done that. And so, realising, you know, the impact that this foreign situation, and like you were saying as well, a a situation that is not new to us or new to certain parts of our world or our knowing... (laughs) But it is a different firsthand response. Like it's not just in textbooks, or it's not just through uh, a news article. We're actually seeing, like you said, live footage on the uh, of people using the subways as a a bomb shelter, and we're seeing. I think one of the things that hit me a lot, uh, quite huge, was. Putin, uh, uh, sort of addressing or sending out a video and he was, you know, had the flags behind him. He was at his official desk and it was, it was framed, you know, perfectly. And it was eerie in that sort of Disney villain sense. And then the Ukraine's president was filming from an iPhone and a completely, what a lot of us would think was an unattractive, Uh, Sort of uh, Perspectives that none of us would end (laughs) up Filming from But he was filming a a plea And a goodbye to the rest of the world From that you know Minus 45 minus forty five degree angle And it just showed that Nature I guess And uh, cry for help that that was And and how their president Is on the ground running You note In your article and we sort of touched on it A bit before about the trauma response that viewing distressing scenes of on media and uh, and you know Twitter and and Instagram and and that sort of constant bombarding of you know what we're seeing and and like I said, what was great about your article and and you know you said that was one of your sort of key drivers was to not burden, uh, for lack of a better term, the the reader, but to actually sort of be like, here's some practical resources. In understanding the trauma response and and what that does when we are viewing distressing scenes, whether it be little T trauma or big T trauma, are you able to walk us through what this research says for for us as uh, removed individuals on arguably the other side of the world?
1: Yeah. So, I think that we can all sort of say when we see these images, these are media exposure to collective trauma. It can prompt very normal responses right which is just baseline distress anxiety anxiousness worry concern but there there's decades of research from these two researchers at the university of california irvine uh, Elsie coleman and roxanne Holman silver and they've looked at what happens when people have sustained exposure to collective trauma through the media so by sustained i mean repetitive over time um even if that time period is a few days or a few weeks uh, they studied events that we all know, which is 9-11, the RAC War in 2003, the Boston Marathon bombing, I believe in 2013. And what they found is that greater exposure graphic or bloody, other bloody images is associated with a higher acute stress and post-traumatic stress symptoms. And as a result, can make it difficult for people to work or participate in social activities. And... What's interesting to me when you talk about big T and little T traumas, I think about it in terms of people who've already gone through trauma. Um, and those what they've found in their research is that past exposure to violence is associated with increased media engagement. So after a traumatic event. So let me just stop there and kind of let's talk through what that means, which is that if you've had past experiences of violence, you're actually more inclined to look at this media, to engage with this media. And I'm not sure that. Uh, Dr. Holman or Dr. Silver understand fully why um, but what happens is they, those folks have uh, more post-traumatic stress symptoms and worry about the future and then in, in turn that kind of triggers, it triggers a cycle in which the person is at greater risk for consuming media coverage of subsequent violent events right, and experiencing higher acute stress following this innocent. So I think it's, it's, the risk is different depending on who you are and, and how much time you spend watching this material or engaging with this content, which is not to say that, you know, the average person can't turn on the TV and watch for 15 minutes. Um, I think we all can expose ourselves to some content around these events and other difficult or traumatic events. The question is how much is too much for you and what happens when you cross that threshold?
0: Yeah. And and I think that that is an important question that we all need to be questioning and asking ourselves and turning inward to be like, how much is too much? Is it 15 minutes a day? First thing in the morning? Is it in the middle of the day? So, we've got time to sort of somewhat recover before bedtime and and get, you know, a a productive night's sleep. And I think one thing that I was thinking when I was reading your article and and Silver and and Holman's uh, research was The fact that we're coming out of, well, not even coming out of COVID, but we're coming off the back of COVID and the two to three years of distress and fear and loss and trauma that that has been reported daily. And we've sort of become somewhat desensitized in a sense to the trauma responses that that is happening uh, within our societies and our communities and, and more so to us individuals and I, w- I would love to know their sort of their understanding or their thoughts on like you said that previous trauma and the, the susceptibility to being more on the back foot in order to, to not be caught off guard for lack of a better term when sort of experiencing and to know what's going on.
1: Well, Dr. Silver has this really compelling research around cascading traumas and that when we have having lived through the last three years, you know, we've gone from COVID uh, and we have not left COVID, but we started at COVID. You know, we have climate change crises, right? Uh, in the United States, we've had a reckoning around racial justice. And it is far from over or complete. Um, you know, we've, we're now... You know, looking at nuclear, the threat of nuclear escalation and invasion of another country. Um, these are all basically cascading traumas that we cannot underestimate the effect that they're having on us, you know, from insomnia to anxiety to, you know, worry about the future. It is a lot. And I think part of the reason why I wanted to write this piece was because I wanted people to understand that it's okay to turn away. It doesn't mean that you don't care it doesn't mean that you're not invested or engaged it just means that you're drawing boundaries around what you're exposing yourself to and for example dr silver told me and i was a little shocked when she said this and slightly envious that she had not looked at any visual content around around the invasion uh russia's invasion of ukraine and she said i'm paying attention i'm i'm listening i am collecting information i'm just not looking at news media and she said the imagery of the footage and she said it's because of 15 20 years of of research that that she's done demonstrating what the effects can be i mean you also have to think about the vicarious trauma that she might be experiencing from studying people who are witnessing trauma so right so so she has drawn, and I don't want to speak for her, I'm just sharing what I share in the piece, but she's drawing boundaries that for her are healthy. And I do think that especially amongst people who want to do good in the world, who conceive of themselves as capable of doing good in the world, there is some shame or, you know, self-doubt around tuning out of the media. Uh, but my argument, and, and I think what Dr. Silver argues, uh, is, and Dr. Bowman argues, is that Without that, those boundaries, without that space to, you know, understand what's happening without exposing, overexposing yourself, you know, you can become burnt out, you can become detached, you can become, um, you know, non-participatory, right? And so it's this idea that when you protect those boundaries, you can actually do more good.
0: That is, I mean, uh, understanding the boundary sort of concept and then now hearing, you know, what Dr. Silver uh, you-, you recall, has said to you has been, I mean, it-, it has definitely been a guilt trip that I've been placing on myself. Like, am I lesser? Am I, you know, am I not as affected as other people who are so up to date on, you know, said building or said you know, individuals or all those sorts of things. And I think I was very glued to it. Like most people at the beginning, because it was this absolute horror that this would actually happen in our modern world when we have so many forms of communication and things. And I think, you know, a lot of people have sort of somewhat said under their breath that they expected something from this man, uh, uh, but not necessarily of this scale. And, Knowing that that's something that we shouldn't be beating ourselves up on and we should actually be thinking of that as a productive way of self-preservation and not a sign of lack of care or lack of invest is really wonderful. And and it sort of hits me in another wave as you were speaking speaking then that it is okay to withdraw and I think that is something very present within trauma responses is that withdrawal of maybe even everyday normal things like you were saying before you know that numbing that disassociation that can happen and almost that uh, focus or the, the the horse blinders of what the trauma is or protecting oneself from potential traumas similar to that or inexperience or or in subject and i think that that was that was really interesting particularly because the majority of the article as i keep going back to was practical resources and practical ways that we can be helping ourselves and those around us every day and and every moment of every day at every news report at every sighting and i think i'm going to definitely adopt silver's approach from uh, stopping viewing it and i I would like to get to a point where I would be able to view it. I mean, we look back at World War One and World War Two and Vietnam and 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 Pearl Harbor and so many horrific events where so many people lost their lives, and it was equally a scale, this form of a scale, just a different time. But we look back; definitely, my generation looks back at them in textbooks. It's something that is so far removed from what we are experiencing today, and and we doesn't mean we uh any less emotionally connected but we are that bit further removed and and those generations who were witnessing it firsthand experiencing it firsthand like the holocaust leaving our world and and dying sadly and so we're again losing that extra degree of or adding that extra degree of separation within that and I don't know whether we'll get to that or our generations experiencing this now, we'll get to that in time and, and how long that takes. It's totally individual. But I think that that's a really from a self-preservation during this time is really interesting when negating and navigating our, our personal trauma responses to to the subjects we've been witnessing over the last three years. And like you said, America's had a really rough time rough rough time of it um of late as well one of the things that they uh talk about uh, and sort of a bit of a uh a segue is sort of the the role of media and our cons- uh, uh, consuming of media what do you think the the media's responsibility in reporting on these sorts of events for the acknowledgement of trauma and the, the effects that that can have.
1: So uh, I'll speak simply on my own, not to represent my yeah, company um, or, <laughs> yeah. or, or the industry at large. Um, I will say huge that I disclaimer. think at its best, <laughs> huge disclaimer, um, that yeah. at its best, you know, media can bear witness in important ways. Uh, you know, media can, Document images and events and testimonies and experiences that help contextualize what's happening and expose corruption and malfeasance, uh, hold the powerful accountable. And I think that the imagery that you see coming out of Ukraine is has the power, right, um, to hold Putin accountable if there is such a thing. You know, um, that is again another conversation, right? But at least you know it's drawing awareness to the the horror of what is happening there. And so I i don't know that I would argue those images and that footage shouldn't be captured. Um, I think what we need to think about in the news media business is understanding how we can inadvertently traumatize our audience by showing certain images on repeat, which is what happens on cable news television or the evening news or, you know, uh, let's think about where photos are placed in newspapers. Um, and I think that the argument amongst many people in this business is that we're, this needs to be witnessed. Um, and I think there's a very robust ethical debate that could happen over how that's shared with audiences and especially given this research. So, you know, I, I over my career, I'm sure I have, I've made mistakes in. Because I think many journalists are taught that the most moving details are the most harrowing. And I think that's true in some cases. And then I think in some, in some cases, it's unnecessary, right? Um, that we can convey the scale of tragedy without necessarily picking out those details or that imagery or that footage that is truly traumatizing. And or, and, or how do we present that to an audience knowing the response it may elicit from them. I I wish I had answers (laughs) to this question, but I think about it a lot.
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost going against clickbait, right? Like knowing those you know not putting the video first up or and absolutely like uh morning news is something that happens i put on in the background and of course every half hour there's the news report and there's distressing scenes at the moment in in australia like we're talking offline there's the floods and and most recently there was a horrible fire in sydney for a boarding house and for the half hour of news that I've seen this morning, or the, the the consecutive half hour news, I've seen that distressing footage. I can't even think. Maybe five or so times already this morning, and you, you just you subconsciously. Uh, uh, consumer and 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 has that effect, and i don 't know I, I today I want to be really present and mindful about how I process that uh, personally. Um, those who know me i my family went through a house fire uh, in two thousand and five, and so particularly when it comes to what 's you know very much news this morning locally the repre- repercussions of that for my emotional and mental state. definitely something that i need to look at and look into or be aware of particularly today um and i think that your article i i'm i can't sing it praises enough truly because the way that you effortlessly and so perfectly represented what was going on and that initial response was just through what was it? Like one or two sentences. It was the first paragraph and it was just saying, you know, the shock of it and going under the assumed knowledge that everyone knows who's reading it is what's happening. And I think I'm going to title the episode, that quote, um, that, that, uh, you sort of honed in, in on nobody is going to break us. And I think that, that is huge when it comes to relating to trauma, relating to this situation and also relating to the attitude that we should have ourselves um, in placing those boundaries like Silver and Homer have, have discussed. And I think that that, you know, it is, I'll I'll be sharing it again in a post uh, this week, but I think it is so important that we do look after our mental health in that sense. And we are looking at how we can, uh, for lack of a better term, how we can uh, meter out those those media viewings and and like I said, I'm going to adopt Silver's responses and boundaries for sure.
1: Well, and for your readers who aren't familiar with that quote, is from it was the President Zelensky asserting, you know, nobody is going to break us, you know, in this invasion. And and the reason I I gravitated towards that quote is because. I was trying to think very carefully about who was reading this and, and I didn't want to assume that it was people without an attachment to the invasion itself. So, and also recognizing that, you know, the people who are in Ukraine, the refugees now as well, they're experiencing, you know, this unbelievable trauma. And I think, you know, in, if we create, if those of us who are not directly affected, you know, and do not have family there or ties to the country can pay attention without inflicting kind of the, without the repetitive exposure to the, the somatic imagery we can help support people, right? Like we can stay present enough where we are in solidarity with, or summoning a collective resistance to what is happening there. And so I I, I don't want to co-opt th- what he was saying about nobody will break us. But I, but I felt like if these, if these people can experience this and summon the incredible spirit of, you know, resilience, determination, resistance that they are, those of us who are not directly affected can still stay engaged with the right boundaries and support them, right? And they're trying to save their democracy, essentially. So
0: Standing in the mud with them.
1: Right. As, as much as possible. And, um, and I think that just becomes harder when we are tuned out, not because we chose to make a decision about what we're exposing ourselves to, but we tuned out because it was too hard to watch.
0: Yeah. 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 In in a sense of,
1: you see the distinction, you know, we just, if we see something, we become overwhelmed. I can't look at that. And so there's this shutting down that happens. And I think there's a middle ground, you know?
0: Absolutely, and then you know, with the shutting down, there is that guilt, um, like we were saying before, or you know, when you you may perceive yourself to be a you know a good person and a, a a person who is up to date on worldly news or what's you know the happenings of the day, and having to sort of exactly turn away and and not be a part of it um, is really really a difficult hurdle to jump when it comes to productive ways, and and your article does sort of note these, of supporting ourselves and and others wherever we live, whether that be those Ukrainian um, citizens fleeing uh, or, or remaining there trapped, or whether it be those around us who have sort of had to turn away and or or like like i said ourselves and we have sort of touched on it what are some uh things that we can do to help those in our micro world but those part of the macro world that are that are the ukrainian uh citizens arguably becoming part of our micro world in some sense
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely um, so Dr. Holman's advice was to connect, right? And and be in touch with people in a supportive way in your as what you described, your micro world, right? So so one that can mean explicitly saying, checking with people that you care about and saying, gosh, you you see what's going on. How are you feeling about it? You know? Um, and do you want to talk about what's going on? Um, and just this sort of camaraderie or support. And it, it doesn't feel appropriate to mention the conflict specifically just saying there's a lot going on in the world and there is a lot going on in the world right now, right? <laughs> like, it, it, yeah. you know, it's just, um, and, and, and building those relationships because human beings thrive on our social connections I and mean, we have social connections as, uh, Dr. Holland pointed out, you know, our health, our physical and mental health improve. So I think one of it is just very simply, you know, reaching out to the people that we care about and then. To your point about Ukrainian citizens, I think, you know, (laughs) there's one benefit of social media in this conflict, which is to, you know, you can find people who are trying to help people on the ground. And so, you know, it means being careful about what you click on and what you're looking at. But there are ways, right, to be sort of connected to people who are trying to help. And, of course, you want to vet these individuals and make sure that if you're sending assistance of any kind that they're, you know, um, legitimate. but in addition to that, you know, there are many guides on how to uh aid Ukrainian refugees. i one of my colleagues wrote a piece to that effect. Um there are ways to, you know, review your practices for looking at media and things like that to make sure that you are getting accurate information, which is really important. I don't, I don't wanna downplay that because having accurate information is really critical to our decision making. Um and, you know, also, I you mentioned refugees coming to Australia and the United States. We actually have Ukrainian communities uh, here that predate this conflict and this invasion. And, you know, there are ways, you know, mutual aid, um, you know, things that you can do to be supportive of those communities during this time. Um, and I think, too, you know, it was just something that came up in, in my work recently, you know, just acknowledging that you may have colleagues, peers um, who have friends and family in the country and being supportive of them. Um, you know, I think that there are many ways to help. And, and I, I should also point out that when we regain that sense of agency, when we transition from feeling hopeless or helpless about the situation to having the, the awareness to say, okay, I'm going to do something. And it may feel small and may be donating $20 to a refugee organization, right? Um, Or to humanitarian organizations working in Ukraine or in the countries surrounding Ukraine. Um, That's something. That's still something. You still did something, you know? And that is big for your mental health.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned you know donating what a lot of people would think is just twenty dollars, but if you think about your weekly shop and and when I was definitely going you know through college and and that sort of early university phase, twenty dollars was my f- weekly food budget. You know, yes, like-
1: yeah, yeah, <laughs> the- yeah, it's a lot, it- yeah.
0: It, it is a lot of money. And if you're thinking about the individual support or the support of an individual and the food or water or sanitary items that they desperately need, or even clothing, you know, th- that is a huge amount of money. It doesn't have to be hundreds or thousands, $20 is enough or $5. Like we think about, you know, some, some brilliant lunch places can provide a lunch for $5 and, and that's fantastic. And, I think that that's really practical to know that however big or small that you can contribute is contribution enough for you. And and you did, I, I think you noted that in, in your article um, that that is one way and I think the research, it was part of Silver and Holman's research that uh, uh, one of our responses is attempting to control or control, you know, our actions within within sort of that trauma response or that visceral visceral viewing of what's happening or, or reading that and and to know that you can donate things at a drop drop off point or you can donate money to one of the certified charities or organizations that are supporting or like you said, even signing up or, or doing whatever you can to help connect those pre existing Ukrainian communities with those refugees. Entering your your own country is is brilliant. Um, you touched on, and I I, I really want to sort of bring this to the forefront as well. You touched on misinformation uh, and the importance of being discerning of misinformation. And you we sort of spoke about it a bit earlier on in in the interview around those who uh, have experienced a trauma. Are susceptible to uh, focusing solely on on that that subject of of their trauma, and the way in which they again fall prey to arguably more sources of information, or is what has beautifully been gifted to us as a society, and and probably the news world as well, is fake news. Um, your most recent article sort of investigates the the linkages between those experiencing depression or within a, a depressive episode and misinformation and consuming misinformation and the potential acts on that or the adoption of of that as as truth is really paramount in how we support that do you have any tips from a journalist perspective, or also just a general disclaiming that, you know, you're not speaking on behalf of your country or your, uh, your country, your company. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Not my country. country
1: either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Um, all your fellow colleagues across the the journal and, and media sort of sector. Do you have any tips on how we can be discerning of what is uh, true information isn't somewhat biased um, and, and isn't, solely isn't misinformation.
1: Right. So I think that there's a lot of really great strategies out there from people who work on media literacy, teaching people to sort of evaluate claims and evaluate sources. And I think, you know, working on confirmation bias, which is this impulse to believe what we hope or think might be true. Um, is really really important but the way I come at this subject is a little bit differently because I've been working on you know, as you mentioned this piece I did on uh, it was a, 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 a sorry that appeared in a journal of American Medical Association journal uh, uh, recently on the relationship <laughs> yes very much uh, it was a Java network open um, so it was looking at the relationship between um depression and believing misinformation, and they found that people experiencing clinical depression symptoms um, were more likely to uh, believe uh, COVID-19 misinformation. And the researchers think that what's happening there is that the negativity bias... By the way, they control for other factors like um, misconception preferences and political affiliation, and they think what's happening is that um, people... like The negativity bias of depression which is sort of what makes us gravitate towards the, the bad the things that we might ruminate on um, that we don't like or didn't want um kind of makes it difficult for people to assess information outside of that what they call sort of like the dark colored glasses of depression and so my so my advice around around information gathering and seeking uh, and mental health is actually not around um, media literacy skills or confirmation bias, although I think both of those things are important. It's around what is my emotional response to what I'm reading right now? What is this prompting me to feel? Do I feel angry? Do I feel vindictive? Do I feel um, justified in my beliefs, right? And, And then is this information designed to make me feel that way? And to be clear, there's plenty of journalism that is designed to make you feel disgust or anger because of an, an injustice or a wrongdoing. Um, and this is where it gets tricky. But when we're... right, so it, And it's, be, it's having the awareness to sort of say, like, okay, this source is accurate. I, I trust this source. And this is an injustice that feels proportionate to my outrage and disgust. Okay? If I'm encountering information that you mentioned the word clickbait earlier, right? If it's the sort of a social media clickbait version of uh, this is going to make you angry um, and you're not sure about the source and you're not sure about the claim and you are a little suspicious of it all and it makes you feel good, then I would take pause and try to figure out what's going on there. Because I think, I think around depression and anxiety, which is another mental health condition that people have been looking at in relation to get misinformation, there's stuff happening sort of behind the scenes for us that we're not fully aware of. Um, and I wish I had sort of a more like bullet point version of, of what to do, but I guess I would just ask people to be sort of aware of what their mental state is when they're consuming news, how what they're consuming is making them feel and the interplay of those things and their their beliefs, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic sort of summary as well of the practical sort of uh, you know confirmation bias and, and looking out for that, but more so being aware of how it's how it's making you feel and and I think that that is. Something that we're learning generally in social media and sort of consuming social media of like, this doesn't make me feel good or this is making me feel really shit in comparison to what that person is putting out there as an influencer. And I think if we are able to transpose those learnings across to, you know, the facts that we're supposedly consuming, then it does help us discern that misinformation and and negate you know, our lack of proper knowledge or or understanding of what may actually be going on, not just in this situation for Ukrainian individuals, but also for us as an individual consuming that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, it just came to me. It is the vagus nervous system that uh we, oh, I mentioned okay, before. Oh, okay, yes. That- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew it would come to me at one point. It's
1: incredible. It's like the sky just opened up and (laughs) dropped it in your lap.
0: (laughs) I know. It's like, we're running... We're about to finish recording. Quick. Here it is. Um, (laughs) This is... This has been such an enlightening episode, and as we focus on mental health, on the informed, it is so wonderful—the you know—to interview you and the work that you're doing and the knowledge that you have as well within the mental health space, particularly based on you know what your career trajectory has been like and and the change in that and also you as a person like every one of us consuming and seeing this footage and these images and these headlines has been really wonderful to know not just those sort of you know intellectual or cognitive practical support systems that we can be implementing in ourselves but also that mental health space for us and the emotional space and the the navigating of our varying degrees of trauma response to to this situation that's unfolding so thank you so much
1: well thank you for having me i really appreciate you opening up this conversation
0: if you like this episode and want to listen to more hit that subscribe button and give us a rating. If you feel comfortable, you can also leave a comment. Head over to Instagram as well to follow us and the resources I post there. It is at the informed, T-H-E-I-N-F-O-R-M-D. The informed minus the E.